I go to court and go to trial, that statement is, goes something like this. The man that is his own lawyer has a fool for a client. Have you ever heard that before? Uh, the proverb is stated to have appeared in print in the book of Henry Kett, The Flowers of Wit, which was first published in 1814. And this is how it was said. I hesitate not to pronounce that every man who is his own lawyer has a fool for a client. However, Brian A. Garner, a prominent legal writer, states that its earliest use may have been uh, traced to 1809 in Philadelphia, where he said something very similar. Now, I hope that you never need a lawyer this way. But if you do, it's wise not to represent yourself. Uh, you need legal expertise and a dispassionate person to help you make the right decisions. This is not just true as a legal matter, though. This is, this is a common value in life. So much of life is connected by relationships. Have you noticed that? Who notices that relationships are important? Yeah. So much of life is about relationships, and so much connection happens in life because of relationships. Uh, you'll have a better chance of making the sale or getting the interview if you know somebody in the company, right? If you have some kind of an in. you got to have someone to represent you or someone on your behalf looking out for you. That's also true in terms of your relationship with God. Jesus said this about himself in John chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by who? Me. Who's he talking about? Jesus, right? No man comes to the Father but by me. When it comes to our relationship with God, on our own, our relationship with God is not good because of this thing called sin. Sin is the problem. Sin is the problem. There's so many problems in our culture, in our country. There's problems probably potentially in your home. There's problems in, 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 in our church. Anytime there's a problem, usually at its root, there's some kind of a sin issue, either sin that we, I've done, sin that somebody else has done to me, or living in a sin-cursed world. And so that means my relationship with God is broken, and God knew that, and he sent Jesus to come and to die on the cross for our sins. And he died on the cross for our sins, and he rose from the dead. How many guys heard that last week? Yeah, he rose, on the he rose from the dead. And now the Bible says he ever lives to make intercession for us. We need a mediator. We need someone to go to God for us and mediate between us and God. And so now we're into back to the book of Hebrews. And in the book of Hebrews, this is our 17th sermon in the book of Hebrews, uh, we find out, we took a little break to prepare for Easter and to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And so in a sense, though, that our series didn't stop because we named the series, Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. He is better than anything and everything. And I hope you believe that this morning. Um, he's greater than sin, death, hell, and the grave. He rose again. And I'm so thankful for that. But we did take a, a break from the book of Hebrews, which makes this case that Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. We learned that he's a greater revelation. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, it'll be up on the screen. You don't have to go there. It says this, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets 
And so God, in, in past times, in the Old Testament, he spoke unto the Jewish forefathers through these prophets, people that spake, that represented him, spake to the people on God's behalf. The prophets represented God to the people, right? But it says, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son, that's Jesus Christ, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. So Jesus is creator, he's sustainer. Verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty and high, being made so much better than the angels, as he by he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So right from the beginning, the writer of Hebrews just kind of takes off and says, hey, listen, Jesus is this new thing that God, the new way that God revealed in these last days. He used to do it just by prophets, by men, but now God has become man and he represents God to you. Isn't that awesome? This is how God revealed himself to the world. So we learn that he had a greater name, that he's greater than the angels. It went on to say that, that he's greater than Moses, that he's a better rest and brings a better rest for his people. And not only is he better in all of those ways, but we learn that he is a better high priest. He is the great high priest. He mediates between us and God. That is, he, so a prophet would come to men on behalf of God, and the, 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 the saying of the prophet was this, Thus saith the Lord. I've got a word, for the, a word of the Lord for you from God. The priest, though, he would come and, and he would go to God on behalf of the people. He would mediate on behalf of the people. And so we learned, he, we learned in Hebrews chapter 4, I'll put this up on the screen, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, that Jesus is our high priest. Okay? It says in Hebrews 4, 14, this, this verse, it says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched by the feelings of our infirmities, but in all points was tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Hey, Jesus came. He became one of us. He lived a perfect life, and he died on the cross, and now he's back where God is. He sits on the right hand of God the Father. And now when I go to God, I go to God by Jesus. And Jesus loves me, and Jesus loves you, and he cares about you. You guys are not with me this morning. Is it hot in here? Maybe I'm just hot because I'm nervous. I don't know what's going on. We have a great high priest, and he's where Jesus is, and we get to talk to God through Jesus Christ. And so the writer of Hebrews tells us in verse 16, Let's therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is there. He's for us. God's for us. God's for Jesus. Jesus is, knows exactly what we need. He knows what we don't need. And so when we go to God, we don't have to go to God through Mary. We don't have to go to God through any other person. We don't have to go through God. We don't have to go through God to anybody. We can go to God through Jesus because he's our high priest. But he's a different kind of high priest. See, the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish people. That's why it's called Hebrews. That's another, the Jews had so many names, didn't they? Children of Israel, the Jews, the Hebrews, all different names for the same group of people. Paul's writing to Jewish believers, 
and he's telling them, he's helping them understand the transition between what it was like before Jesus came to what it's like now. And he's saying basically, all of those things in the Old Testament are pointing to something better in the New. The Old Covenant was a picture pointing us to the New Covenant that we have in Jesus. And so he says, talking about this idea of priesthood, they understood priesthood because so many of these Jews had gone to priests. The priests would make sacrifices, uh, would help them make sacrifices. He would literally, they would kill an animal, uh, a, a lamb without spot or blemish. And, and what the New Testament teaches is that lamb is a picture of Jesus. John looked at Jesus and said, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He understood exactly what that meant. So when we get to Hebrews chapter 5, the writer, and we already kind of covered this, but I'm trying to catch you guys up, all right? In Hebrews chapter 5, he says that Jesus is a different kind of priest. He's not a priest like the old Aaronic priests, the priests that had come down from this guy named Aaron, who was Moses' brother and the first priest, and all those Levites from, from the tribe of Levi that came after him. Hebrews 5.1 says this, For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God. Isn't that what I just told you? Priests go to God on behalf of men, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, who can have compassion on the ignorant. These, these priests, they were like us. They were just men. So they can have compassion on us because they know what we go through, right? And of them that are out of the way, for, he, for that he himself also is compassed of infirmity. And by reason hereof he ought as for people, so also for himself to offer sins. What that's saying is this. The priest had to offer a sacrifice for himself and not just for the people that came. Because they sinned too. Do you get it? I got my own sins to confess. I can't confess sins for you. Neither could these priests. Are you with me? And so it says, verse 4, And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called God of God, as was Aaron. These priests didn't, they weren't made priests by election. Vote for Ben, for high priest, you know. That's not how that worked. They came from a particular tribe. There was a priestly tribe, the Levite tribe. The, they were of Aaron, Right? Verse 5, so also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that said unto him, now that he is God the Father, in the book of Psalms, which we're going to see in just a few minutes, where that God prophesied about Jesus when he comes. He doesn't say the word Jesus, but he talks about his son. God, through the psalmist, said, thou art my son. Today have I begotten thee. And as he has said in another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now say Melchizedek. You guys got it. That was awesome, right? Okay, so there's this prophecy in Psalms written thousands of years before Jesus came that says the son when he comes, the Messiah when he comes, is going to be begotten of the Father. He's going to be of the same kind as the Father. Jesus is God. Wait. Jesus is God. Right? But that he's going to be made a priest, but that priesthood won't end like the, you know, the human priests died. Their priestly office ended. 
But he says, you're going to be a priest, my son Jesus. You're going to be a priest forever. And it's not going to be after the order of Aaron. It's going to be after the order of Melchizedek. This is repeated in verse, um, in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Though he were a son, yet he learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all that obey him. Called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. You see it again in chapter 6, verse 19. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, in which entereth in within that veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus. Now talking about Jesus is in the holy, he's in the ultimate holy of holies in heaven, right? Made for us a high priest forever after the order of, say the name, Melchizedek. Now, here's why you really should need to pay attention to me today and to what we're studying. I want you to walk away today understanding what this passage says about this person named Melchizedek. This is not an easy passage. I'm in Hebrews chapter, what what chapter are we in? Seven. I'm in chapter seven because before I was in chapter six. We're just walking through this. And this is like kind of a heavy portion of scripture, but it's here for us, right? It's here for, we, do you need to know what this says? God revealed it, so we better understand what it means. Okay. I want you to walk away. I was thrilled by this passage. Unbelievable. I hope you get thrilled by it too. This passage says something incredible about this person named Melchizedek, but I want you to understand this. Our God is a God who reveals. He reveals. And part of how he revealed, we know, the ultimate of how he revealed is in his word, right? But he also revealed through history. History is his story. That's what it is. And God made things happen. God is sovereign. He is providential. He can do what he wants to do. And he has orchestrated some events in such a way so that then he could point to them in Scripture and so that he could teach us something. And that's what we see happening in this guy called Melchizedek. I want you to walk away catching a glimpse of all that God has done over time to help us understand exactly who Jesus is. Because who Jesus is and rightly identifying him is the most important thing in your life. Whether you recognize it or not, who Jesus is and how you identify him and how you interact with him and having a relationship with God through him, that is by far the most important thing. And so if God's revealed something about him and who he is, we need to know something about it. We need to to live in light of it. So I want you to understand exactly who Jesus is, what he's done to save us, and now he now ministers on our behalf as our great high priest. The only shot you have at being right with God is by having a mediator between you and him. And that mediator can be none other than Jesus Christ, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So we can have a better understanding and respond to Jesus as our greater high priest after answering these three questions. Number one, here's the first question. Who is Melchizedek? Anybody wondering? This guy's talking about this Melchizedek, four-syllable dude. Who are you talking about? 
Well, let's walk into our, the passage. Here's where we are today. Here's the passage that Brother Long read to us. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth of all, tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. So there we are. We have to talk about this because this is the next set of verses and I have to tell you what it means. This text is a summary of what we, what we learn in Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20, about a man named Melchizedek. It would be helpful for you to know the context of this interaction. Abraham was chosen by God to begin the Hebrew nation. That was hard. That was like Porky Pig there for a minute. What was going on? Okay, let me kick another step of that. You guys know who Abraham is, right? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. Abraham was the beginning. God chose Abraham and said to Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation, and I'm going to bless thee, and I'm going to make thy name great, and in thee all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So Abraham started a nation. Started a couple, actually. One of them being the nation of Israel. He, God gave him a promise. He was a person that had a covenant. He didn't have any children when God first made a covenant promise, promise to him, but he said, hey, you're going to have you're going to have progeny. You're going to have kids that are going to be like the sand of the seashore, like the stars of the sky. You're going to have so many offspring, and Abraham and Sarah are like really old with no kids. And so they had to, by faith, believe God, and because they believed God, God counted it unto them as righteousness. That's what the Bible tells us. Now, Abraham was chosen by God, but at this time, he only had a nephew that was named Lot. So say with me. You got Abraham, you got Lot. Lot went with Abraham when God sent Abraham away from his family into a land that God was going to show him. One of the things, when God came to Abraham, he says, Abraham, I want you to leave your father and mother, and I want, to, I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. He didn't say, I want you to go 100 miles this way, then 100 miles that way, and then you'll, he didn't give him a map. He just said, go, and I'll show you once you go. Kind of an interesting way to go. And Lot went with him. And then God blessed Abraham, and subsequently he blessed Lot so, that, so much that they had to separate from each other. They're, 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 Lot has so much uh, wealth, and Abraham has so much wealth, and they have people working for them, and those people start getting mad at each other because there's all these promises, problems. And so they said, hey, we're going to split up. So when you get to Genesis chapter 13... It says this, And Abraham said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go right, or if thou depart to the right hand, I will go left. And so Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zohar. So then Lot chose them all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves the one from the other. So you have this split. Abraham says to Lot, you choose that way, I'll go this way. You choose this way, I'll go that way. You choose, God will work this thing out. So that's what they do. 
When we get to Genesis chapter 14, we find that the people in and around Abram and Lot were governed like tribal groups with kings. So different tribal groups that all had kings. These kings and their people would battle and then be subjected to each other. One tribe and their king would then pay tribute to another tribe and their king. And in chapter 14, it comes to a head when two different sides, one with four kings and their tribes versus one with five kings and their tribes, went to war with each other. Abraham's nephew, Lot, was on the side that had the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah. Are you tracking with me? Okay. Lot's side with Sodom and Gomorrah was being beaten, and Lot was taken away by their enemies. So they're in the middle of war. Lot gets uh, kidnapped, taken, subjugated. And so eventually some people get away from the battle and get to Abram, and they go to Abram for help. So Abram took, and the Bible says this, he took 318 of his own men and went to battle against these tribes. Doesn't this sound like it would make a great show? It's like violence. I love violence. It's awesome, right? Like, yeah, really cool. So they're like fighting. Somebody gets kidnapped. They come to Abraham. Abraham's like, I'm getting my men, and we're getting a posse, <laughs> and we're going to go, and we're going to go get my nephew and, and get him there, right? That, so then that's what happens. That's where we are when we get to Genesis chapter 14. Verse 14, and when Abraham, no, Abram, it wasn't even Abraham yet. Abram, same guy, different name. When Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. That's a place. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants by night, and smote them and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and also brought, again, his brother Lot and his goods and then the women also and the people. Abraham was a bad dude. And he had these 318 people and he goes and beats this other tribe and brings back all this stuff. He rescued his nephew. I know it says brother there, the brother, brother's idea of a kinsman, someone like that. So it's, it's still his nephew. And he comes all along with the kings that were with him. And that's where we get to verse 17. When we get to 14, 17, it says this. This is them basically finally getting back together with all the rest of these kings. Verse 17. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Chedor Loamor. That's one of the kings that, uh, that was going against Lot. And of the kings that were with him in the valley of Sheva, which is the king's dale. So here he is. They're coming back. He's bringing back all these people he rescued and all of the money and resources from having beat him. And this is where we find in the middle of this random narrative in the Old Testament, you're like, why are you telling me this story? Check out what happens. This is amazing. Verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he, Melchizedek, blessed him, Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he, Abraham, gave him tithes of all. And the king of Sodom, and Sodom said unto Abraham, Give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. So, why don't I tell you that story? 
Well, to answer the question, who is Melchizedek, here it is. Melchizedek was a king and a priest who at a time before Abraham was called a priest of the Most High God, well, sorry, before Abraham was even called, before Abraham had, before there were any such a thing as Jews other than Abraham, there was this priest of the Most High God. Before there was any priest after Abraham, there was this other priest, Melchizedek, who was a priest, but he was also a king. He had specific titles, and he received tithes. Tithes are, means tenth. It's an offering, a tenth of all that was there he received from Abraham. The whole point of his existence in terms of what we know about him is to point us to Jesus Christ and to give us a picture of the ministry of Jesus Christ as our royal great high priest. Here's what's crazy. He's not referred to again in Genesis. He's not referred to again in any of the books of the law. He's not referred to again in any of the prophets. He's only mentioned one more time in the book of Psalms. And then he's mentioned in this book of Hebrews. His name doesn't come up again until Psalms. And then it doesn't come up again after that until Hebrews. So that leads me to question number two. If question number one is Melchizedek is this priestly king who Abraham paid tithes to, had specific titles. Here's the next question. What is the significance of Melchizedek's titles? Because the writer of the book of Hebrews points to Melchizedek and says something about his titles. Look at verse 2, chapter 7, verse 2. Here's what it says. To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of Peace. So here we're told about a couple of titles for Melchizedek, and then I'm going to point you to Jesus. His first title is King of Righteousness. Melchizedek is two parts, Mel and Kizedek. Mel means king of, Kizedek means righteousness. So his name literally means king of righteousness. He is a king of righteousness. Who's another king of righteousness? Jesus Christ. The second thing we're told, he is called King of Salem. When my dad was in college, he was kind of a nerd. He's still a nerd today. But in Bible college, they learned that, he, I'm online, he knows. Um, <laughs> in college, he would always, they found out that the word shalom meant peace. And it was a greeting for Jewish people to say to each other. You say, hey, shalom, peace. Shalom and Salem come from the same root word, and shalom means peace. Jerusalem is a city of peace. He's the king of Salem. I believe that was a forerunner or a prototype or kind of an early form of what we call now Jerusalem. So here's a guy who is the king of righteousness, the king of the city of peace, Salem. Now we call it Jerusalem. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? We learn also that he was a priest of the Most High God. Now, the way that God did priesthood before was that a priest would never be a king. In fact, there were times where kings in the Old Testament tried to go out of their kind of lane as being kings and tried to do priestly things, and God 
punished them for doing that because he didn't want the kings and the priests to be the same because that's not what God wanted to have happen. But here we have a Melchizedek who before there were any other priests was a priest of the Most High God and a king at the same time. Jesus Christ is the king of righteousness. Without, he is without sin forever. Did Jesus sin? Did Jesus do absolutely everything right? Did Jesus do absolutely everything right for the right reasons? Is he coming back to rule and to reign? He is the king of righteousness. Is Jesus Christ the king of peace? He became a propitiation, a wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins and not for our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You know why he was forsaken? So that we could be forgiven. So that we could be accepted. And he has brought peace. Go to, real quick, this is in the notes. Go to Romans, real quick. Romans. Chapter number five, Romans five. Therefore being justified, this is verse one. Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Why do we need peace with God? Because in our sin we deserve the wrath of God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, we, by whom also... We have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. Not only did God take away my sin, now God gives me the chance to get to, now Jesus gives me the chance to get to God. Romans 5.8, but God committed his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from Wrath, whose wrath? God's wrath through him, through Jesus. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. We are made at peace with God because of the king of peace, Jesus Christ. Melchizedek just points us to who that is. Look at verse 3, talking about this Melchizedek. It says, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth, talking about Melchizedek, he abideth a priest continually. Now back in Hebrews 5, 6, the psalmist is quoted, that the psalms quoted that says, Christ is predicted to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. There is an Aaronic order of priesthood, which was based on genealogy. Those who were priests in the Old Testament were of the Levitical line or of Aaron's line. Aaron was a part of the tribe of Levi. So these priests were of the tribe of Levi. In, in, in verse 3 of chapter 7, it's pointed out, what we just read, that Melchizedek's family line isn't even recorded. So in the Aaronic line, you, that's how you became a priest, is you had to be of the right family. Melchizedek, we don't even have any idea who his parents were. We don't have any idea who his descendants were. God just has this guy show up, receive tithes from Abraham, bless Abraham, and then he's gone like a shadowy figure in the night, and we have no idea what just happened. Are you with me? There are some that think that this means Melchizedek was literally out of nowhere. 
They think this text is saying that he literally was without father and without mother, birth or death. Others say that it doesn't mean that he literally did not have those things, but that those things are not recorded about him in Scripture. The truth is this. The silence of God on the matter is the argument that the author of Hebrews is trying to make. He's saying that in the Aaronic order of priesthood, we have all kinds of information about genealogy, birth, and death. But in the case of Melchizedek, the Bible is conspicuously silent on these matters. The author of Hebrews is saying that this is by design. What evidence is there that this is the argument of the verse? Well, look at the next phrase. He says, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth the priest continually. The phrase I want you to get there is, but made like unto the Son of God. That word translated made like unto is a word that is only used one time in the New Testament. It's the word it's only used there and no other time. Thayer defines it this way, to cause a model to pass off into the image or shape like it, to express itself in it, to copy, to produce a facsimile, to be made like or to render similar. It's an incredible word. What he's saying is that Melchizedek was placed by God in the world and is described the way he is in Scripture to point us to the priesthood of Jesus. Notice that Jesus is not, not a facsimile of Melchizedek, but that Melchizedek is made like unto the Son of God. Do you get it? Melchizedek is like Jesus. Jesus isn't like Melchizedek because Jesus came for, first. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he said, let us make man in our own image. Us? Who? Yeah. Christ, came, Christ was part of creation. He created it. By him is all things, and in him all things consist. Am I making you uneasy talking about Jesus? He created everything. So, also notice that this priesthood is revealed as ongoing. It says here, he abideth a priest continually. So what have we learned about Melchizedek, about this priestly order of Melchizedek? Number one, it's royal. It's a royal priesthood. He is king. It's a peaceful priesthood. He's from Salem. He's, it's a righteous priesthood. That's the meaning of Melchizedek. It's universal, meaning it's not an Aaron line, an Aaron's line, so it's not just for the Jews. Jesus is a priest for not just Jews, but for for everybody, all that believe on him. And here's what's so cool, it's unending. How long is he a, is he a priest? Forever. <laughs> we tend to experience things chronologically and therefore see that as the order of importance sometimes by default. Marriage came first, then Christ and the church were revealed and so in terms of revelation. And so therefore God must have designed Christ and the church after marriage, we would think. Yet we're told that God designed marriage, which came first chronologically in the history of the world, to point that he, what he was going to do in redemption in this previously unknown about church age. It's similar here. God has been working out his plan for redemption from eternity past. He introduced us through the scriptures let me say this again. He introduced to us through the scriptures what happened in a valley in Abraham's time with a king that we don't know much about 
so that thousands of years later he could point to this narrative in the New Testament to help us understand the ministry of Jesus Christ himself, which is royal and peaceful and righteous and universal and unending. That's what he did. How big is God? God is big. This means that sometimes, think about this. Think about what this means for your life. Think about this. Sometimes God uses us in ways that we'll never understand in this life. Sometimes, have you ever had something happen and you're like, why did that just happen? Why did that happen? I have no idea. Okay. You know what? God's big enough to use us even when we don't know it. We may wonder, what, God, why is this happening? What is that all about? Let me tell you, God is under no obligation to explain every circumstance in our lives. Sometimes we think we understand why certain things happen, but then in the end, we must trust God even when we don't understand. And so, who is Melchizedek? Who was, what about his titles? Number three, what is the significance of Melchizedek's tithes? Tithes. They're really Abraham's tithes given to Melchizedek. Well, look at verse four. I got to hustle. Here we go. Now consider how great this man was. Talking about Melchizedek. Unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. Now you understand that to a Jewish person, Abraham is a big deal. There is no Jewish nation without Abraham. You get it? He is the, the father. He, he, he's, he's, he is the one who started the whole thing. I mean, obviously God did. So when it's so here, the writer of Hebrews begins to compare Abraham and Melchizedek because they showed up in a valley one time talking to each other. Abraham here he says tithed, meaning he gave a tenth of the spoils of battle. This was before the law was ever given. There was no law written yet. Moses is the one that received the law from God, and in that law it talks about tithing. But here, this is before any of that happened. And here, Abraham gives a tenth of all the things that he got and gives it to Melchizedek. Why did that happen? God has a plan. Look, this gives us an idea as to the mindset of Abraham in regard to his perspective on Melchizedek. Abraham showed some submission in this act of giving to Melchizedek. For the Jewish person hearing about this about Abraham submitting, it would have been quite a shocking thing. Father Abraham was the person of promise. He's the person from which the whole nation comes. And here is this figure that's talked about in a few verses in Genesis, a little bit in Psalms, and then now in Hebrews, which is just now being talked about. Abraham was submitting to this guy Melchizedek and paying him tithes. And so when you see verse 5, it says this, And verily they that are of the sons of Levi who receive the office of the priesthood have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, Though they come out of the loins of Abraham. What he's saying is, you guys are very familiar, Jewish people that I'm writing to, Hebrews, I'm writing to you. You guys understand because you've done it. You've paid tithes to priests who received tithes because that's what the Old Testament law told them that they should do. You've seen that happen. And what he's saying is, those were people that, those people that did that, you experienced that as a Jewish person. They were of Aaron's line. Aaron's line comes from Abraham's line. Do you get it? So there's a whole like generation that comes from Abraham that received tithes. Stay with me. 
Out of Abraham's descendant comes a Levitical Aaronic priesthood. They honored God by giving tithes through that Aaronic priesthood. But now see the contrast in verse 6. Look at it. But he whose descent is not counted from them, who's he talking about? He's talking about Melchizedek. You have Aaron's line, starting with Abraham, going to Aaron, going through the Levitical line, receiving tithes. Then you have Melchizedek's line, and it's just Melchizedek, and later Melchizedek points to who? Who's the other priest of the order of Melchizedek? Jesus. So he says, verse 6, He whose descent is not counted from them received tithes from Abraham, and he blessed him that had the promises. So who's greater, Melchizedek or Abraham? Melchizedek. That's what he's saying. Do you get it? Here's how we know Melchizedek's better. Melchizedek blessed him, and Abraham paid him. Do you get it? Melchizedek's priesthood does not come from Abraham. It comes from Aaron. He's not a descendant of Abraham. In essence, the Aaronic order tied to the order of Melchizedek. Then Melchizedek was the one who blessed Abraham. Abraham did not bless Melchizedek. Melchizedek blessed Abraham, described in verse 6 as him that had the promises. And again, this being blessed is a sign of submission. The case that the Holy Ghost is making here is that the Abrahamic Aaronic priesthood is bowing in submission to the kingly, royal, righteous priesthood of Jesus Christ. Who's a better priest, Jesus or Aaron? Jesus. I'm worn out. <laughs> Verse 7, and without all con contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. Although many may have not recognized it, the Holy Spirit is showing us that Abraham submitted himself to Melchizedek and in so doing showed that he was greater than Abraham himself. This is both clear in the scripture and yet unacknowledged by most of Judaism as being something that pointed to Jesus Christ. When Abraham tied to Melchizedek, it was not just commending this practice of tithing. It was commending the priestly order of Melchizedek, which is the priestly order of Jesus Christ himself. And although it has been scoffed by detractors, there's something to the practice of submission and proportional giving, even in this pre-law moment. In this moment, this was an act of submission. It was, it was given to another person and didn't seem to be done out of sheer obligation. It was proportional, this giving. It was given and connected with blessing and an acknowledgement from one authority to another. He goes on real quick, verse 8. And here... Men that die receive tithes. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying, there's still, as of the writing of Hebrews, the, the temple was still around. And there were still people called priests that were receiving tithes. So what he's saying is, here in our time, men that die, do priests die? They receive tithes. But there, talking about Melchizedek, he received them of whom it is witnessed that he liveth. 
What he's saying is, back in that place, he's speaking of Melchizedek who received the tithes, and he's pointing out something quite interesting. The Aaronic priests are dying while the order of Melchizedek never dies. He's pointing to the fact that there is no birth or death recorded in Melchizedek, and this was a picture of the fact that this priesthood is a forever priesthood. And that's why, in the only verse I haven't read today that speaks of Melchizedek, in Psalm chapter 110, verse 4, it says this, The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever, talking about Jesus, after the order of Melchizedek. Here we go. What is the point, Pastor Ben? Jesus is greater. He's our great high priest. He says in verse 9, And I say to, and as I may say so, Levi also received tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. For he was yet in the loins of his father, and Melchizedek met him. What he's saying is, Abraham was the, the head of all those in the Aaronic priestly order. He was the representative by being Father Abraham of all the priests when he paid tithes to Melchizedek. Again, why does this matter? The guy who shows up in just a few verses is the greater, and Abraham and the Aaronic priests are the lesser. Why? Because in verse 3 it says, Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. This particular verse does not necessarily mean that Melchizedek had no literal father or mother, but that it was definitively kept from our knowledge, not expressed at all in the passage, and in so doing to make one point. What is that point? Jesus is the full and final and greatest high priest and the only one you'll ever need. We don't need any other priests. We don't need any other priests. We don't need anybody else to go to God on our behalf for us to be able to get to God. Here's what's amazing, and I'm kind of stealing the thunder for later sermons, but Jesus was both the priest and the sacrifice. How cool is that? God orchestrated the life of a guy that we know three verses about so that we would understand you don't need another high priest. Jesus isn't like those other high priests who died and sinned and needed sacrifice for them. We don't need those kind anymore. Because he kept the law I could not keep and he died the death I deserved to die. And then he lives again and why he lives is not so that just because he, li he lives now in heaven with God to make intercession for me so I can come to him now that I'm saved as one of his kids and I can go to God and say, God, this is what I need. God, I need salvation. I sinned. And you sent your son. You've orchestrated all of human history so that I would know that you sent your son to die on the cross for me to be buried and to rise again for my sins. And not just to end it there, but then to now minister as a high priest on my behalf, going to God for me. And you know what? God's big enough to care about your kids. He's big enough to care about your family. He's big enough to care about your job. He's, he, he's big enough to care about your toe when you stub it. He, he, he's big enough to forgive you of the cuss word you said when you stubbed your toe that I just talked about. 
Are you with me? We don't need anything else. We got Jesus. But here's my question. Do you have Jesus? Do you have him? Have you put your faith and trust in him? Because if you haven't, you don't have a great high priest. You don't have someone going to God on your behalf. He wants to. The Bible says, he who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, man believes unto righteousness and with the mouth, confessions made unto salvation. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And once you're saved, you're his kid. You're rich. You have everything you need in Christ. Starting with this idea that Christ is now your great high priest. He died for your sins. He buried, rose again. Now he represents you to God. He will be our priest forever, unending, after the order of a righteous and royal and unending and universal priesthood. And all God's people said, would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me?